Welcome to ASME TechCast, where we bring you the innovators, the innovations, and the issues that push the envelope of engineering. I'm Carlos Gonzalez, Special Product Manager at Mechanical Engineering Magazine. And in this episode, we'll be speaking with Colin Swerdy, Solution Consultant with Dassault Systems. Today, we'll be speaking about the latest innovations in generative design CAD solutions and how engineers can leverage those tools for their designs. Colin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So generative design is a topic that I feel like has been around for a while now, and people understand it as this sort of automated way that a, a CAD solution platform can design for you, right? We give you the engineer puts in some constraints, and then the algorithm will tell you the best design based on those constraints and the materials. And it's almost like if the software grew an organic part for you, that's the, uh, the best way I've seen it described. Um, what have been some of the latest advancements in generative design? Because it's been a few years now since it's been introduced to the engineering industry. And how is it most commonly used today? Sure. So I'll pretty much kind of start off by, and, and I, I like your description of what you're saying generative design is. And kind of one of the things that, you see a lot of differences in, you know, what people are actually considering generative design to be. So if you were to ask me what generative design was, I would, you know, start off by just giving you a very plain answer and telling you that it's a new way to design. And the reason I'm saying that is because there's, if I compare the way that parts have been designed in the past, or even in the present, in many cases, you know, a designer is creating a part based off of their experience or their intuition. Maybe they're creating it similar to an existing part that had a similar function. And so generative design is going to be the contrast in that where I'm really allowing a simulation to, um, based on the loads and the requirements, the constraints, things like that, that's going to drive the shape that is generated, uh, hence the name generative design, from my simulation. So in terms of generative design advancements, um, really, if you're to ask me, it's, it's about incorporating different elements of optimization within kind of the overall generative design umbrella. So generative design is not exclusively speaking about, hey, it's just topology optimization or it's just sizing optimization or whatever it may be. Generative design is really kind of the overarching umbrella for different optimization methodologies based on my use case. So in terms of advancements in generative design, you know, you are seeing more optimization methodologies incorporated into this. So traditionally, we see a lot of topology optimization. That's what I think people are thinking of when they hear generative design. But then you see elements of shape optimization. So kind of looking at um, localized areas and reducing stresses through simulation or, you know, performing sizing and bead optimization on thin walled parts, um, all, all the way to leveraging things like lattice. So I would say a lot of these advancements aren't necessarily technologies that haven't existed in the past, but it's kind of incorporating them into these more user-friendly approaches and UIs that are enabling users who might not be an expert in some of these domains from a simulation perspective, but they have an idea of what they're trying to do. So it's really about incorporating more elements of the existing technology into a more usable and user-friendly manner. And so let's discuss some of the maybe major ways engineers are using it today. Is it mainly for the initial kickoff design or is it more for the refinement as you get towards the, you know, the tail end of the product? You know, I've seen, I've seen several ways that people are using it. I would generally say it's kind of leveraged initially as like an exploration tool. And so essentially if I'm 
really at the concept phase of a design um, loop, uh, the designer is going to go ahead and set up before even making any assumptions. Um, they're usually leveraging generative design to say, okay, I might not get the perfect answer on this first run leveraging generative design, but I might be 90% of the way there. So I already have an idea of, from a functional perspective, how this part should look and how, what type of shape is going to be best tailored towards what my design objectives are. So once again, that's kind of where it's very input sensitive. So based on my loads and boundary conditions that will completely drive what types of parts that I'm looking at. So I would say it's used really upfront to get an idea and go ahead and get me on the right path to having you know the best uh, performing, you know, optimal shape for whatever my design objectives may be. Now, you do see elements where some people are kind of using it for some bits of refinement and things like that. But generally, what I'm seeing is, hey, we have, you know, we're starting this problem from scratch. Let me le leverage generative design to see what the requirements are telling me, and then from there, I can iterate and then do refinement moving forward. Some of the new things that I've uh, that I've seen, and some of the latest advancements, and some of the things that the show has introduced, are these new terms in the in the realm of generative design that I'm not familiar with. So, mm -hmm. cognitive augmented design, which oddly enough spells out CAD. Don't know if that was <laughs> on purpose, um, but generative structure design as well. These are, I want to say, maybe more AI level involved generative design. Could you explain? What's the difference between that and what's generative design been in the past? How how is it new? Sure. So I think you you alluded to it, and um, you're correct in saying this. So cognitive augmented design um, is incorporating more elements of you know machine learning and automation. So essentially, if I'm kind of comparing that to the traditional CAD computer aided design. Um, a lot of that was kind of looking at more exact geometries or, you know, it could be anything from direct modeling to the feature base, which we see a lot today, but it's really kind of looking at just the design level aspect of, you know, creating a part. Cognitive augmented design is really building upon um, kind of the origins of where CAD started, and it's incorporating elements of basically collaboration, knowledge, know-how, and automation. So by kind of enabling these things, you're kind of building out um, really a more sustainable and intelligent approach to um, creating new designs, whether it's for, um, you know, fluidics or structures, whatever it could be. So generative design is kind of where we're going with cognitive augmented design is that it's, it's adding in, you know, these elements of, you know, simplifying workflows, giving users user-guided assistance to go through a process without needing to be an expert. And then the next layer on that is, of course, incorporating things like machine learning. So if I go through this and I'd seen an iteration that might not have been perfectly optimal, it's close. Well, the, the tools that I'm using are able to learn from that and then propose something better the next time around, taking into consideration, obviously, um, problems that they've seen in the past. So cognitive augmented design, if you were to ask me, is really just adding in that level of extra knowledge for the user, um, taking advantage of you know-how know and other automated things that have taken place before and then in increasing that level of intelligence to your parts. Now, generative structure design, uh, that's kind of just, I would say kind of two domains within generative, there's generative structures and then generative fluids. So kind of based on the problem, um, you'll, you know, take one route or the other. So whether it's looking to minimize pressure drop for an interior duct 
maybe in an HVAC system or something along those lines, maybe in a manifold, you know, I would go down the fluids route. And then obviously if a part has well-defined, you know, loading conditions and various restraints associated with that, you're going to take more of the, the structural approach. Understood. So let's talk a little bit about the adoption of these tools and how engineers are embracing them. In your opinion, which industries have maybe gravitated toward these tools the most and which type of engineers have maybe leveraged this technology the best in recent years? Sure. So in terms of industries, the three of them, maybe four really stick out to me. Um, one of the top ones is aerospace. Um, lightweighting is a, I'm not going to say it's synonymous with generative design, but that's something that you see oftentimes. That's one of the reasons people are exploring generative is they're saying, Hey, I can get a lighter part. That's you know just as strong, if not stronger than the existing legacy design. Um, you know, the implications of saving weight on an aircraft in terms of cost savings for the year, in terms of fuel efficiency and things like that, they're huge. So aerospace is obviously very quick to adopt something like this because they have a lot of flexibility in terms of what they can do. Um, and then the, the savings that they get from this type of technology are huge. Uh, another one that stands out, uh, automotive as well. So um, you see a lot of customers in the you know, transportation sector looking at leveraging and improving their designs with generative. Um, another one is industrial equipment. Um, people who are making big, heavy machinery, um, you know, always finding ways to optimize and lightweight those to make those um, devices and machines more efficient. And then another one I would say kind of that stands out and keep in mind, it's not just um, limited to these four, but the other one would be things like life sciences. Um, so in life sciences, you see obviously customized prosthetics and um, even certain elements of robotics that are associated with, um, helping out patients and things like that. You see a lot of uh, use cases for generative design in those. So from my experience, it's been mostly, air, I would say aerospace has the, you know, top use cases that I've, I've come across. But, um, you know, I think that we're still continuing to find out more and more ways to leverage this, leverage this type of technology across different industries and sectors. Um, so it's really interesting to kind of see where that goes. What would you say is the role of the engineer as this AI technology becomes more sophisticated, more prevalent, you know, basically doing a lot more of the heavy lifting per se. Sure. So the role of the engineer, I would say in these, you know, it's great that we have tools that can, you know, eliminate a lot of the guesswork and, you know, make things easier to use and prevent, you know, the engineer from having to do all of the quote unquote heavy lifting for a lot of these things. But I'm, it's still very important to be able to use your judgment. You know, if I'm seeing something that I don't think quite makes sense, you know, there's sometimes there's not always a perfect substitute for, you know, reality and experience. And so, you know, as you know, the tool, not every tool out there is perfect. Um, there's still improvements. Otherwise, you know, we, we haven't reached the Holy grail quite yet, I would say, but a lot of it is things like, okay, the user might be using generative design as a baseline to understand something, but there's a lot of customization that goes on after the fact that there's no way to relay that information to a machine and, or maybe there is, but it hasn't obviously been done yet. So there's a lot of, you know, intent behind the designer and judgment calls that they have to make to be able to see something and say, Hey, um, I get what it's telling me to do. I think this is mostly feasible, but for these reasons, I would like to change it, you know, in this manner. 
And whether it's just for aesthetics, customization, or even function, I could look at something and say, okay, well, the validation results tell me that this part in theory should work, but I would feel a lot more comfortable and my analysts would feel a lot more comfortable if I added, you know, a little bit of thickness here or an extra beam. So there's still a, an element of judgment that needs to take place from the designer because the tool can, you know, propose multiple um, solutions, but it's still up to someone to make the, you know, the call and say, okay, I like this one for these reasons. And, um, you know, maybe I can, if I go with this one, I have a lot of flexibility to change and iterate upon that beyond what I'm just seeing from the raw optimization output. And I think that's the level of education that maybe needs to evolve, right? I've sure we've, we've talked a lot in the, in recent months, especially in the wake of the pandemic, how the engineering education model is kind of shifting students were home a lot more. So these young engineers entering the field are entering more now than ever a digital landscape. Oh yeah. Um, and they need to adopt these new tools probably a lot quicker because we don't know yet what the situation will be or how it will effectively change for the next few years. What is your thoughts on what the education shift can be so that future engineers maybe are more um, familiar out of the gate with these type of tools? Yeah, so I like this question because I think it's something that um, it's, it's kind of a paradigm shift in terms of, you know, the way things are, or things are done today. So I, in my opinion, you know, young students and things like that coming out of university or college, you know, they're very amenable to learning new things and looking at new approaches. They're not set in their own ways of, okay, I've done it like this for 20 years. And, you know, deviating from that is, you know, really kind of giving me issues because, you know, I'm so stuck in my ways. And, you know, you see a lot of young people who are uh, much more flexible in the way that they're able to, to learn and work. And so one of the things that you've seen and that generative design has really kind of broken down this barrier is there's traditionally a, a barrier between design and analysis. You know, they work in kind of their own silo departments. The designer might do, you know, a portion of some work. They send a file over the wall to an analyst who then has to, you know, they're meshing apart, they're setting up simulations and optimizations, they're throwing it back over to the designer. So it's a really broken process. And, you know, in terms of education and the way that we're, you know, solving this, well, generative design is a huge blend of design, analysis, and optimization. And so kind of getting, you know, from an educational standpoint, getting people in the mind that, hey, you know, these things don't have to live in their own siloed world. You know, we can incorporate all of these things into one place and kind of making more instead of, you know, a designer or an analyst, creating more of like product engineers um, who are, you know, more well, who are well-versed in not just the design aspect of things, but, you know, the analysis side as well. Um, you know, I might need to, tweak the part for these reasons, because I know that it'll perform better if I do. Um, so I would say that kind of looking and continuing to break down the barriers and generative design is a great way to do this, um, where it is kind of forcing these two groups who are traditionally siloed to work together. And so I would kind of promote that from an educational standpoint as well as, you know, before we even get anyone down the road of thinking in these two different mindsets, go ahead and blend them and let people understand, hey, these things work together and there's a lot of benefits from um, unifying these two things. So let's just go ahead and, you know, look at it from a holistic standpoint rather than a more, you know, kind of tunnel vision line of line of thought. I would agree. I think engineers, especially as the tools start to offer more, engineers need to become multidisciplined. Exactly. 
So before I let you go, my last question is, what is the future and what maybe in the next five years is the most exciting aspect that's going to come out of this technology for you? Um, I'm honestly really excited to kind of see, you know, as I, I mentioned at the beginning and I referenced it, you know, there's different optimization methodologies that are continuing to be incorporated into the overall gender design umbrella. So you're seeing more and more latticing uh, that's beginning to mature a lot more. You know, there's, there's tools out there that um, obviously handle latticing and things like that. So I would say latticing is one thing that's um, fairly exciting to see how that continues to progress. It's been around, you know, we can do it, uh, but still seeing where that goes. I think that latticing, not only from an aesthetic standpoint, you know, looks cool. Um, it's very functional and, and great in terms of lightweighting and generative. So uh, that's very exciting. I think when we touched on it earlier, multi-physics, um, incorporating things like multi-physics into generative design, looking at multi-materials for single parts, you know, kind of blending, um, materials throughout, you know, one single part and then seeing how that affects and improves things. Um, so I would say a lot of kind of just continuing to um, develop these tools and, you know, taking advantage of things that are out there, but may not be incorporated in generative design yet. And then looking to see how that grows. I think that's really where a lot of the excitement where I see a lot of this going. Excellent. Well, Colin, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being a guest on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm Carlos Gonzalez. Thank you for listening to ASME TechCast. You can find our other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or your favorite podcasting platform.